Okay, hi, I'm Shailene. I want to thank everyone so much for, first of all, for coming out on a um, snowy, somewhat dismal evening um, for this reading. And I also want to thank you for waiting while we uh, got ourselves together here. Um, also, um, I have to tell you um, something a little sad, which is that Lisa Couturier is, was not able to make it um, tonight. Um, and um, we're, we're going to miss her. We're going to try to have her come back for another reading. Um, but we are sorry about that. Um, but we are thrilled that John Gary has come all the way from New Orleans to be with us on Mardi Gras. Um, and we're very happy to have him here. Um, before I introduce... John Gary, I just wanted to say a few things about poetry events at the Pratt, because we have lots of exciting things coming up. Uh, in National Poetry Month, April, on April 5th, that's another Tuesday night, Leah Purpura and Tanya Olson are going to be doing another Poetry and Conversation evening right here. And then Monday, April 11th, we have a Poems by Heart event, which um, is very fun. Everyone brings a poem to share that they love, or you can memorize a poem that you love and share it that way. Um, then Saturday, April 16th, um, the great Claudia Rankin is going to be doing a reading at our Pennsylvania Avenue branch, and the evening before, she's doing a reading at Micah. So um, put that on your calendar. We also have a poetry contest going on until March 1st. So if you're a poet um, or if you know someone who's a poet, grab a flyer on your way out. Um, and you could get your poem printed large in one of our great big windows outside. And if you get on our uh, email list, which is also on the table outside, you can find out about all our poetry events as they happen. So please do that. You, and we'd also appreciate if you leave us a survey at the end of the evening. Um, OK, so I'm going to introduce um, John. I wanted to just um, read one poem by Lisa's, because um, I know some of you were probably looking forward to hearing her read. So I, I, I've been reading her book, and it's, it's wonderful. You should all get it. I thought I'd just read a poem that she wrote called Apology to a Vulture. Um, many of her poems are about animals, uh, but um, yeah, and this is one. Some of them are also about being a woman, being a mother, um, and um, but they're very much about the continuity between humanity and nature. So here's Apology to a Vulture. It has an epigraph, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That's from Acts. Resting on a vulture's soaring wing, warm under its blankets of feathers. You might doze as the vulture flies in lullabies of hot air that rise in spirals. Other vultures would circle with you, each rounding through their own silent songs. This is how the sky captures vultures for hours until a cologne of blood and bones requires your vulture return to earth. Now you understand the poetry of Vulture's Latin name, Cathartes Aura. Your bird of death is a cleansing breeze of light. This is when you could apologize for always wishing what you see in the sky are eagles. So that's by Lisa Couturier, whom we miss. Um, okay, now I'm going to introduce... 
John Gary. John Gary has published seven books of poetry, most recently Have at You Now. His work has appeared throughout the U.S., Europe, and Canada, and has been translated into seven languages. Gary has also published criticism on poets ranging from John Ashbery to Marilyn Shin, as well as a critical book on the nuclear threat and American poetry. He has co-authored a guidebook to Ezra Pound's Venice and a biography of an Armenian poet whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce because I, it's going to... Um, there's no way I'm going to succeed. Um, he has co-edited four books of poetry and criticism, and he has worked as a collaborative translator from Serbian, Italian, Chinese, Armenian, and French. His awards include fellowships from the NEA, the Fulbright Foundation, the Louisiana Division of the Arts, and the University of Minnesota, a research professor of English at University of New Orleans, and director of the Ezra Pound Center for Literature, Brunenberg, Italy. He lives in New Orleans with his wife and their son. Um, and John Gary has a poem called In Our Time, in which he writes... In our time, we became the ones anxious to expose our enemies as everyone else's enemies, looking away from ourselves, always looking away from ourselves. His own poems look the opposite way, towards ourselves, ever more towards ourselves, whether he's writing about the woman who collects his ticket at the airport or the fun of reading Philip Larkin at 3 a.m., the poems delve deep into the complex riddles of human consciousness, our fantasies and memories, fears and desires, innocence and guilt. Elegant, complex syntax and verse forms are ways of expressing intricate truths in these poems, and humor grounds them. We may not be reading Philip Larkin at 3 a.m., but hearing John Gary at 7 p.m. is a thrill also. Please help me to welcome John Gary. Thank you very much, Shailene. Thank you. Happy Mardi Gras. It's a necklace with a shoe on it because the muses 
the motif of the muses is the shoe. So I've got some meat here for people. Um, if you want. To put you in a festive mood so I can read dreary poems to you. Okay? Is that all right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you'll think they're just bad, not dreary. Uh, for me, I'm coming to the city of Edgar Allan Poe, among others. Also, one Baltimore, yes. I mean, he died here. Uh, and the last I heard was a couple of years ago that uh, even though the football team is named after his poem, that his house was not properly funded. Is it getting better? I mean, it would seem to me for a tenth of what it costs to sign a new uh, draft D for the football team, they could restore the, the house. And they're called the Ravens, so they should do it, it would be their own interest. They could put a big raven in the front and sell paraphernalia and make some money, but actually restore the house. I've never been to the house. I might try to go see it this time while I'm here. Um, good. That's great. That's great. Where is it? So is it University yeah, of Maryland High School? So it's not very far from here then. What's the name of this? What's the name of this church? Westminster. And there's a there's a cemetery next to it, an old cemetery. Is it called Westminster Hall now? For the for uh, University of Maryland Law School. Yeah, I don't know why I've never been there. Thank you. Yeah. Really? Just to, in order to save the cemetery? Wow. Wow. That's what I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. I'm sorry we're not there now, but I'm happy to be here. This is called a garden room or a pool? So it's, uh -huh. I read in, uh, my wife is Serbian, and so I've gone to Belgrade, Serbia, for a long time now, uh, almost every year. And I read there in a Roman ruin, which was in the library. <laughs> but they found it underneath, the same thing. They found it underneath, so they, they got the, they got some of the ruins there, and they turned it into a nice room. 
so you go down underneath the library and then you have a room like this that's, you know, people sit and do readings. It's quite nice. And it's right in the middle, just like this is in the middle of the city. Um, I'm very sorry that Lisa Couturier is not here. Uh, I'm, I have only met her once, but we've corresponded. And I'm a great admirer of her writing. Uh, and so I was thinking about her when I was thinking about poems to read. Um, but I was also thinking of the conversation. And so I, I hope we'll have conversation. I mean, I really like the combination. In fact, in, the, um, in Serbia, uh, not always, but when they have a poetry reading, they often have the reader there with a critic who will then comment almost on every poem after the poet reads it, then the critic will get up. Sometimes the critic will take two, three times longer than the poet to tell you how you know, wonderful the poem is or how complicated it is or something like that. Then they'll have music and so on. So it's, a, it's, it's actually sort of a festivity and not just uh, a single person reading for a while uh, and then people being polite, I hope, <laughs> um, and so on. So that's... Uh, that's, so I'm looking forward to the possible possibility of conversation, and please don't hesitate yeah, uh, to, to speak up, if you wish. Um, I'm also very aware, well, I'm very aware that it's Mardi Gras. There's too many things going on today in my head. I'm aware that it's Mardi Gras. I'm aware I'm with Poe, uh, for me, in the world of dreams, uh, uh, and aware of the animals in Lisa's poems. Uh, really quite wonderful poems that she has. Um, and I'm aware that I'm in a library. And I always uh, feel that when I'm in a library reading poetry, it's an appropriate place to read poems about books um, because of the contradictions. So all of these things to me are contradictory. Lisa's book uh, of prose, if you don't know it, is about animals that can be found in urban areas. It's not about animals living in the country, it's about animals living in the middle of the city. And it's quite wonderful series of essays about the animals that you find, the birds, uh, everything from pretty much the roaches and the snakes to the birds uh, uh, and the rodents that inhabit the city, a city like New York where she lived for a while. Um, and so that's, uh, that's an interesting contradiction to me or the word I really think of is paradox. Uh, and so the only thing I can sort of put all these things together, I'm wearing beads from a, uh, one of the crews of Mardi Gras. Each parade is conducted by a crew. They spend all year preparing for it. And then they have a theme each year. And some of the crews, the oldest crew goes back to before the Civil War, the crew of Comus. And the crew of Comus, the oldest crew, is, still wears masks. They all wear masks, but they wear a mask so you don't know who they are. It's the last crew that is still entirely anonymous. Uh, but they no longer march in the street, the Comus crew, which is one of how all these contradictions work. Uh, I've lived in New Orleans a long time, but about, uh, I guess it was now about 25 years ago, must be almost, um, the city council of New Orleans ruled that a crew could not uh, discriminate against its members. So, for example, the Muses crew that I threw some beads from is a women's crew. That is, it's all women in the Muses. But in fact, if a man wants to join Muses, they can't discriminate against him because he's a man. Well, Comus, which goes back from before the Civil War, is all white crew. 
although you can't tell, I mean, they all look white because they're all wearing white masks. They have these, those deadpan white masks. It's only this far away from the Ku Klux Klan, which is so interesting in New Orleans. It's one of these contradictions. Uh, because at the front of the parade, you have the king of each crew, and then you have the court, the, the princes, the knights, the knights, who ride on horses and wear masks. So you don't know who they are, at least traditionally, you don't know who they are. Now everybody, except for Comus, everybody doesn't mind anymore. But in front of the knights, they have what are called the flambeau carriers in a traditional parade. The flambeau carriers are almost always black men who, wear, who carry posts with oil, little oil burners uh, with fire. And if you've ever seen pictures of Mardi Gras, you see the flambeau carriers walking down the street dancing with their uh, kind of a, like a, a, a tea with fire at the top burning. And they spin it around. It's very colorful. And they, they dance in front. And then the, the knights come behind them wearing bright yellow or purple or red Outfits are not like, they don't look like the Klan, but they're covered, uh, riding on their horses and in front of the, the Clambeau carriers who are, who, are, um, uh, spinning the, who are walking, who are walking. Um, and the, the Flambeau carriers are the only members of a parade, generally, to which the audience, the people on the street, throw something. Everybody else in the parade throws you things. So it's a, this built-in sort of class distinction where we throw coins to the flambeau carriers who traditionally are African-Americans. And then the crew members up on the, on the floats are throwing beads and trinkets and doubloons and cups and things to us on the street. Um, years ago, the city council no longer said you could no longer discriminate in your crew. And there are crews now, I mean, there's a Zulu crew, which is an African-American crew, but not, they don't discriminate. But the Comas did not want to allow African-Americans in their crew, the oldest crew, so they just stopped marching in the street. They still exist. They still have their balls and their parties at Mardi Gras. They still wear their masks. They have a very formal party. But they won't go out in the street because it's illegal for them to go on the street. They can't be in public as a crew that discriminates by race or by any other means, you know, uh, against Jews and things like that. Um, so all these are contradictions. If you talk to the most left-leaning person in New Orleans, uh, you know, who's all in favor of whatever, you know, socialist socialism, um, and then say, well, you know, what would really make a difference in New Orleans class difference is if you eliminated Mardi Gras, they would have a fit. You can't eliminate Mardi Gras. It's who we are. It's our character. Um, so I'm thinking of all these things, and I thought I'd read a couple of poems, uh, sort of thinking about paradoxes, about paradoxes. Um, the the uh, epigraph I have is not from Poe. I looked for Poe, but I thought uh, I wanted to read this one, which is from uh, Italo Calvino, the Italian writer, who says, because I'm in a library, I think of this phrase. He says, what makes lovemaking and reading resemble each other most is that within both of them, times and spaces open, different from measurable time and space. So yeah, I like this sort of connection that he makes. 
So I'll read a couple of poems um, and see what, what you think. Um, but I'll start out reading a poem about language. Mostly this is so I can warm up my voice. I like to try to get it going. <clears throat> this is a poem called English is Dying. English is dying. We may laugh, thinking that like the sun, it will take 10 million years to shrivel into a black ball smaller than your fist before it disappears. We may draft contingencies or dream of a Mars where the imagination lingers on in frozen idioms, capsules of copulatives, histories, recording even the eyebrows we now raise at those who question us. We cannot even conceive of the death of this music that stirs us to rise. The words for strong thighs that cradle our heads when, like me sometimes at home, we crawl into bed to put wet lips beside soft parts, kindling sighs we claim separate us from mere animals. With so little time to recall what's said in English worth repeating, we may, like me sometimes downtown, run afoul of nouns, mixing memory and lexicons in a suture we want no truck with. As we strain to graft what we know or think we know, thinking we know something, no one has spoken yet. Or look to escape what diminishes us en masse until we are old enough to know better, but are no better off for knowing. We may stash letters from those we have come to love for their beauty or grace, no matter how broken, feeding our drive to make these things last, but English is dying. So to keep what we prize from oblivion, we must devise a future we need to believe in as just the same, like me, with you sometimes, inventing our past. Then I'll read this poem. Two, two poems about books. From this book. It's called In Travesty. It's the name of a novel, as the first line makes clear. In Travesty, a novel by John Hawkes, the papa drives his wife, son, and son's wife toward a cliff in France, next to a sea, I think, to crash and die. Everyone balks, learning how little Papa values life. 
that he would ravage not only these three who mean the world to him, but their love too, the trust they put in him, letting him drive them, for instance. Why would any man decide late in his life, living in France, to do such a criminal act? How dare deprive them, his loved ones, of their best years? Is it pride, self-hatred, or ambition, this disdain Papa has for those likely to survive him? Does he fear how much his heirs will forget or how much they'll remember? Fear the pain of losing love or of losing to rivals who will get to see 10,000 more suns set on Normandy, Lake Erie, or Caracas than he will. I'm amazed how hawks can write, so I'll feel sorry for an abject killer, even if I can't recall where his attack was, nor how his victims looked. But here tonight, in pitch black, Death could not feel any realer. This one is called Done Reading. Not John Dunn reading, but just with one end. Although, it makes me always think about done reading. I don't know if you ever get tired of reading. Never. I have a love-hate relationship with books. You know, that's what happens when you get married to somebody. Done reading. I doubt I'll read again F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise. I'm 30 years older than he when he wrote it, so can't backslide now and choose among the plenty of things I haven't read by him, that book. Because as much as I might learn from his mistakes, instead of searching for his flaws in my free time, I'll turn to the mysterious new moods I'll look to leap from the just-published pages of those the omnibus reviews praise as our deep contemporary sages. It's sad to think that spring I savored Fitzgerald's prose, like an old friend I've lost touch with, is gone for good. Books fling secrets no friendship knows across the body, flush with discretion. And in that heat, of innocence undone, age notwithstanding, I invariably have felt complete dissatisfaction. Still, one by one, the titles high atop my shelves disown all claims to permanence like aging queens. Prepare to be forgot, they groan even as they betray the sense, I'll always find them there.
I actually see I, 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 I lie in, in this poem because I, when I wrote it, when I first drafted, I was 20 years older than Fitzgerald when he wrote This Side of Paradise. And then I said I'm 30 years older, but actually I'm actually getting closer to 40 years older. So I have to keep changing the poem that way. But I, I, I first wrote a draft of this poem before Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and then in Hurricane Katrina, living in New Orleans, uh, I, my wife and I lost about 3,000 of our books. So the notion of the books lasting forever just because they're sitting on a bookshelf was uh, changed a little bit by that experience. This one is called Auntie Hemingway. Where is he? Oh, sorry. Auntie Hemingway. I have a lot of things to say, but I'm not so tough about getting to the point the moment you expect a surprise. Just look at those untied U.S. senators, for instance, bobbing like a bevy of Pecksniffian hens on a farm no cleaner than one you're liable to run into during any drive to the country. Sure, they are rife with scenic rhetoric for the weathercocks back home. But in the stalls of their business, they take forever to lay an egg. Some of us, it seems, have to wander phrenologically over the bumps of confusion before we arrive sweaty and exhausted, but happy at last to find the place we marked on the map. And then there are always the introductions, awkward adjustments to the unknown, squelching that desire to turn back, smelling the barnyard. Yet, while someone else is using the bathroom, the view, which has nothing to do with our being here, if you really must know, but which bears mentioning, is as suddenly lovely and fresh as a young friend who bursts into your favorite room with good news so long awaited impatiently that your sigh can practically be seen through the syllables, like sigh this. With that moderate gush of fondness, men cherish as much as women do, that seamless implicity, Thus, the graceful unwinding of things I wish for you, like dying at an advanced age of natural causes, or my saying, excuse me while I think of the right word. May I offer you something to drink in the meantime? That's an argument with Hemingway. And then I also have a poem in here that's an argument with William Carlos Williams. If you know Williams' uh, dictum, which is actually sort of misunderstood, but is still very provocative uh, when he says in his poem, uh, no ideas but in things. You know that line. No ideas but in things, which is such a profound influence on the poetry postmodern. Um, about the importance of the image and the focus on the particular. This is called American Ghosts. 
Not so quite, excuse me, American ghosts. Not quite so collapsible as you may imagine. These bones of the fundamental country. They hold up loosely within the spirit, the American ghost, fit like an elegant shirt around a clean lapidary body. So you can see they are cut from the same cloth. No things without the ideas we call them by when comes the time to bless and eat. We ingest neatly the white corn. We inhale after that the air and swallowing whole hog what we have been given. We stroll out into the open even if no one else notices us. The field itself we are crossing much like any other field fallow for yielding us its rich future after a rest. And we are assured by our very invisibility, pressed deep into our flesh of ourselves, footloose and bravely unseen, yet thought of all the same. Uh, one of the Neoplatonic, probably the most well-known Neoplatonic philosopher uh, by the name of Plotinus from, I think, the first century A.D. or first, second century A.D. Uh, was an important influence on the poet Ezra Pound. And in, in this, in, in many ways, but in one of the ways, is uh, Pound really likes the idea that Plotinus has that it's not the soul that's inside the body, it's the body that's inside the soul. And so it kind of reorganizes our conception of things a little bit. And Williams is a great, great poet. But I like to take a shot at him. Uh, Read a couple more. Okay. I'm trying to read a little bit from different books. This is from this book called Gallery of Ghosts. I'll read two poems from this book. Maybe uh, one more after that or something, then we'll take a break. Um, This is called Giving Up the Ghosts. Must be Poe. Giving Up the Ghosts. What ghost would I give up were I to give up mostly and release my preternatural self like dye squeezed from ripened berries? or peace from edicts meant to justify perpetually warring armies. Maybe I'd get hung up inside a vine or sucked in by some Parsi baby or poisoned from my own design ooze into fat or spread as rabies. That would be that. 
But this, this would melt away. No flesh left to be stashed with keepsakes of the self I felt should stay. And as my body flashed before me, as my corpse's welt went long past healing, feeling gone, heart hollow as a dyer's eye, my soul a whole, still I'd be drawn to what I now know I rely with disembodied sadness on. Then I wanted to read this poem. Uh, I wrote a series of poems. This was uh, now over 20 years ago. Um, short, during and shortly after the first Gulf War. Um, I used to read these poems and say, some of you might remember the first Gulf War. Now I have to say that honestly, because there are people who are actually born after it who are fully grown. Um, but you, if you were there, if you were old enough to see this, you remember they were, they was the first when they were bombing Baghdad and there was the green light at night. They could show us everything in the green. And it was this uh, frightening to me, frightening uh, to watch a city of civilians be bombed in the middle of the night uh, and be sort of cheered on by the commentators in the news. And then they had a, a, a um, press conference in the desert and it's when they first undid what they had done in, during Vietnam where they would not allow reporters to go in the field without being, quote, embedded with the military. So when they went into the field, they were, their lives depended on being protected by the soldiers. So it put them in just a very different perspective. Uh, any way you think about it. But that meant that reporters, nobody could really independently verify what was happening in the field. And during the press conference, I remember um, Colin Powell and uh, Norman Schwarzkopf and then Secretary of uh, uh, the Defense, uh, Dick Cheney, standing in front of the uh, press and reporting the results of their sorties, their bombing, uh, and saying this many people died and this many people were, and these many buildings were destroyed and these troops, and giving us wonderfully good news and not revealing the deaths of any civilians, as though that was, you know, they called them smart bombs, remember that? Um, and, and I was amazed, I was, I was amazed, and they were getting 95% approval rating by the American people. Uh, with the first George Bush as president. I was amazed that people were just taking this as fact when there was no way that Norman Schwarzkopf or Colin Powell could know the, re the results. And we found out later, of course, that they were not correct. So rather than write protest about it, which I wanted to do but felt you know, um, too sort of powerless, I thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So I decided to write a series of poems, which I call a pack of lies, and how if you write something convincingly enough, it becomes true even if it never happened. And so I have a pack of lies, and these lies are things. I remembered reading something somewhere, and so I'm going to write a poem about this thing I'm reading. But guess what? I don't have to do any research. 
and there are a series of dramatic monologues. You know, so I, I remembered somewhere reading something about uh, you know, how Babe Ruth pointed out the Homer, that's one of them, you know, and all these, uh, uh, um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a Cuban sympathizer and so on. Um, and one of the things I remembered was, hmm, this is lie number four, that Francis Osgood slept with E.A. Poe. Francis Osgood, the poet, if you know her. She's a wonderful poet from the 19th century. So this is in the voice of Francis Osgood. Lie number four. They say it isn't sex that you remember. I disagree. To think of Edgar's frown that night we lay in bed till after five, talking about the future as the ember beneath the grate flickered, burning down to nothing. Never had I felt alive like that, I thought. He so preoccupied, imagining every variant of death he could. And I determined to give birth to one of our ideas before I died. The curse of poetry, our shibboleth. But poetry does not disturb the earth. I can't agree with all that talk of spirit he made. It's opening my legs, I swear, ever so slightly, while he sucked my breast, then took my thigh in his left hand to steer it over his own, coming inside to bear his hips on my hips, I remember best. I wouldn't scribble this were not my eyes so bleary from the pills and tea like blood flushed through a drain, my nurse pours down my throat. She blinds my body so my soul might rise invisibly like smoke above the flood of longing that slaps against this burning boat. But I am sinking faster than her hope. I sense the swirling sea surround me. Hate, I couldn't call it, but despair's the thing that slowly starts to tighten like a rope. As fastened to the mainmast of my fate, I feel its spar inside me still, and still I cling. And um, I'll read one of these other poems. Um, very, I've always been interested in writing dramatic monologues, poems in other voices. Um, I have a, a book-length poem about a northerner from New York who was stationed in New Orleans during the Civil War uh, when New Orleans was occupied. It was the first foreign city occupied by American troops uh, in 1863 because it was not part of the United States when it was occupied. Uh, uh, and then I also 
uh, have those live poems in different voices, and I wrote a book in the voice of Charlemagne, the medieval emperor. Um, and recently I've been trying some different things, and so these are, I, w I was thinking about how poets always use birds as, uh, for metaphors for poetry, and so I thought, well, what would it be like if birds used humans as metaphors for their experience? So I have a series of poems in the voices of birds. So I'll just read one of those now, but maybe I'll read a couple. And I, I, I think of Lisa's poems about birds because they're really wonderful. Uh, and she heard me read these, and that's how we got to know each other, actually, I mean, how we first talked. Um, so that's, I'm thinking, I'm sorry she's not here. But at least now I can read and not worry that she's already heard it. It acts as though she's there. I feel like uh, Ted Kennedy debating Jimmy Carter. This is called Carrier Pigeon. Carrier Pigeon. You know, Carrier Pigeons were recently honored for their work during uh, World War II. They were a very important part of the Allied cause. Carrier Pigeon. With a brain as small as mine, how can I be expected to carry more than others' messages? I wait in line behind this one elected to go first. His wing smothers my view. Yet, what can I do but take my place, depending what vital secret comes next? It's my turn. Once this war's through, Tossed aside and pretending no more to believe the text I convey. What then? Head empty, chest hollow as at my birth. Might I start to volatate or fester? Who will exempt me and who recall me to earth? Maybe to propagate, maybe to propagate or just bask in her nest. By then, compromised by all I've flown, not mine, and battered from war, too old for any young hen, I'll take off like now, alone. Thank you for listening. I'm glad to, yeah. First of all, good evening, happy Mardi Gras to you. Um, I was, um, when I looked at the description, I understand there in Italy you have the Ezra Pound Center for Literature. Can you talk a little bit about it? And there's always the Italian side in me that's always curious. Uh, how is it, you know, what do they have? Thank you. Um, I appreciate that question. It, it, it becomes an opportunity to make an advertisement for me. So, um, Fair enough, then I'll, I'm just promoting it. But because I'm so enthusiastic about the program, I feel sorry for people when I start to talk about it. Because a student might come and ask me about it, and then the student, like, half an hour later says, I just asked you a question, you know. Um, uh, 
I teach at the University of New Orleans. And the University of New Orleans has a, an international agreement with many universities, but one of them is the University of Innsbruck in Austria. And years ago, now almost 50 years ago, um, I think it's 40 years ago, um, one of my colleagues, uh, who is an anthropologist, learned that there was an anthropologist teaching at the University of Innsbruck who is the grandson of Ezra Pound. His name is Siegfried de, de Rackewitz. And he's actually an Italian, although his mother, Mary de Rackewitz, Pound's daughter, is an American, because both of her parents were American. I don't know how much you know about Ezra Pound. He's one of the, the most fascinating, if nothing else, he's one of the most fascinating figures of the 20th century. He uh, was part of almost everything that happened during his sort of adult years up until 1972 when he died. The last 10 years he was under a vow of silence. He's a very controversial figure. You won't find a single monument to him in the United States, even though he was born in Idaho and raised in Philadelphia, uh, because he was arrested during World War II uh, in Italy uh, as uh, giving comfort to the enemy, and he was arrested for treason and brought back to the United States because of his support for the uh, regime of Benito Mussolini in Italy and because he did radio broadcasts, which were mostly literary, but could be actually uh, construed, were taped by the American military, and they could be construed as uh, discouraging Americans from fighting against the Italians. Um, and he was being paid to do this, although he, he was not being told what to say. He was speaking his own mind. It was very controversial, fascinating history. He was arrested. He was incarcerated. He, he was incarcerated in a military camp for several months. Nobody could find him. And then he was brought to Washington, and he uh, was to be tried for treason in Washington. Um, at, and uh, instead of being tried, the case was made by people like Robert Frost uh, and his lawyers, the Pound's lawyers, that he was insane. And therefore, he never stood trial, but instead he was incarcerated at St. Elizabeth Hospital, uh, which I think now belongs to the Department of Homeland Security in Washington. Uh, but it's an old institution. And he was there for 13 years uh, at St. Elizabeth before he was released. Uh, this is a long answer. See, I'm sorry. Um, uh, his daughter, Mary Therakowicz, was actually born in northern Italy near the Austrian border. And that's a different story. She's also a fascinating figure. She turned 90 last year. Um, and while uh, she was a young woman, she, uh, as a nurse, she attended to the wounded uh, Nazi German soldiers uh, because she was living in northern Italy uh, near the, you know, the Brenner Pass. Um, and her father was also in Italy, and it's a long, interesting story, and someone is going to do great films on several, we could make like three different films on this. Um, uh, but while he was incarcerated, she married, and she, uh, her husband, uh, who had a title, had inherited a title as a prince, were able to buy a ramshackle, run-down castle in northern Italy, in the Tyrol, what's called the South Tyrol, Sud Tyrol. And it was cheap because it was falling apart. And then they rebuilt it. And her idea was to rebuild it or to renovate it, to fix it up, so that when her father was released from St. Elizabeth, um, 
he could come and live in Italy. Because he'd lived in Italy at that point for about uh, almost for, uh, oh, 40 years. Um, and then he came back to Italy in 1958 when he was released. He returned to Italy and he returned to this castle. The castle's called Brunenburg. Uh, and Mary had children, raised her children at the castle. Uh, and one of them was this, grew up to become this anthropologist, Siegfried the Rakowitz, who was running the castle. So my colleague said, well, you do anthropology, I do anthropology, we should do a program on the South Tyrol at your castle, which he was already doing with other schools. So they started to do a program in cultural anthropology for students. It's a, it's a fascinating area in the mountains, in the Alps, uh, but it's a part of Italy, the Tyrol, where it's by law mandated that everyone speak both German and Italian. Uh, it's one of those regions of Europe that would be in great conflict. There's a conflict between the Italians and the German, or the Austrians, really, the Tyrol, but they're Tyrolians. Um, but because it's a wealthy area, it's a, they're not financially strapped, so people live with each other, and they're getting better at it over the years. But it's a bilingual part of Italy. You're in Italy, but it's a German-speaking part of Italy because it's close to the border. Uh, and so once my colleague start, set up her program, there, she realized where she was. She was in a castle which was to be the home of Ezra Pound. So about over 25 years ago, one day someone called me up and said, you're interested in Ezra Pound? I said, yeah, I am. I said, well, do you know about this castle? I said, yeah, I know about this. How would you like to do a program there? And I thought, you shouldn't be asking me this because I know many experts on Pound and I'm not one of them, I'm just a poet. But I said, if you ask me, I'm going to say yes. So I've been doing a program there uh, in the summers, not every summer, but I'll do it again in 2017, uh, for one month in a castle in northern Italy. We live together, a small group, in a seminar, and we do uh, a class on the poetry of Ezra Pound in a room that has artifacts of his life around us, his uh, original papers and letters and uh, his suitcase and his tennis racket and all, all these, and sculptures and so on music that he wrote, um, his, cl his uh, clavichord, which was one of his favorite instruments. And then we also do a class on poetry writing. So I do these two classes. And the classes are for uh, graduate student credit, but undergraduates also take it for credit. And then others who are just interested in pound, especially in European culture or modernism, also come and attend as auditors. Uh, and so anybody is actually, I, I've had people from China, from Japan, from Israel, um, uh, from Hungary, uh, you know, from different parts of, of the world, because Pound, who is not officially respected in the United States, is widely uh, respected around the rest of the world. There's an Ezra Pound Society of China. They invited me to go speak there about three years ago. Uh, and we, had a, we went to the Ezra Pound meeting of Chinese, where the papers were all in Chinese. Uh, most of them, except mine wasn't. Uh, and and uh, they are uh, excellent readers of Pound, because Pound was very interested in Confucius as part of his work. Um, uh, so we run it. It's an inexpensive program for one month. Also because Pound uh, spent so much time in Venice and Mary, Mary de Rakowitz's mother, who was an American, 
bought a small house in Venice, which she still owns. We also, I go with my students, uh, or participants as I call them, to Venice for three days. Uh, and we walk around and I read to them the poetry of Ezra Pound in the streets of Venice, which is quite wonderful because he has a, he has a real vision. So a number of years ago, I think you mentioned it, Shailene, uh, I worked with a colleague who lives there and we have a small guidebook to Ezra Pound's Venice where you can walk around in the streets and read the lines. And I'm working on a longer, I've been working on a longer book about that too, but this is actually a much more practical guide than the one I have in mind. Um, but I, I, uh, uh, Ezra Pound is, is in some ways a kind of a Dantean figure. Dante was from the city of Florence, Firenze, in Italy. Uh, and he, his mentor was a poet 10 years older by the name of Guido Cavalcanti. Cavalcanti is a beautiful writer of lyric poetry. Um, and Dante, in his first book, which is a kind of memoir called uh, La Vita Nuova, The New Life, writes about the importance of Cavalcanti to his own development as a poet. And yet, because of the politics of the time, they were on different sides of political factions at a time when they were at war. And for uh, a while, um, Cavalcanti was on the outside and Dante was on the council on the inside and he was part of the group that um, sent, I remember thinking of the word, but you know, sent Cavalcanti in exile. What's the word? X something or other. X. That's good enough. Yeah, there's a better, but that's good. That's good. Um, so Cavalcanti, who was his great friend and mentor, Dante was responsible for Cavalcanti being banned from Florence, and it led to Cavalcanti's death. So in a way, Dante killed his best friend by his political actions. And shortly after that, the factions changed, changed and Dante was expelled. Thank you for the word. And, and Dante spent the rest of his life in exile from Firenze. He went to Verona, where he was welcomed, and he always remembered the Veronese because they welcomed him in exile. And then he lived in different places around uh, um, Italy, including in Ravenna, and that's where he wrote the Divine Comedy, as a poet in exile. But he was actually scorned by his own people. And Pound, in an interesting way, he's very influenced by Dante, he writes an epic poem called The Cantos, which when you read it, you think, what is this? But it's endlessly fascinating, and that's what we talk about in Italy. We spend two weeks on that epic, and it's an education. It's just a wonderful, challenging poem that you take one line at a time, and it's a kind of a world epic because it's in multiple languages and so on. Um, but Pound left the United States at the age of 22 because he lost a job in Indiana. He got fired from his job. Uh, this was in 1908 because he was teaching at, at a, um, a small college, Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And he was teaching um, comp lit and French language and so on as an American. And one night there was a, who knows what happened, but there was a carnival going through town 
uh, a circus, and a member of the circus decided she no longer wanted to stay with the circus, so she left and pound, made her acquaintance in the street as she was uh, leaving the circus, and she had no place to stay, so he offered for her to stay in his rooming house, uh, and apparently she slept in his bed and he sat in the chair in his room. But the next morning, his landlady called up the president of the college to say that young Professor Pound, who was about 22 at the time, had a young lady uh, in his room last night, and Pound was given his walking papers. And that was the only kind of job he ever had. Uh, but the luck was that because he was fired, he was under contract like a football player or a coach. He got the rest of his year's salary anyway, and he used that to go to Italy. And that's when he, he had been there before, but that's when he went to live in Venice as a very young man and to see if he could become a poet, 1908. He came to visit in 1913, but he basically didn't come back to the United States for uh, 40, almost 40 years after that, living in exile. So, but when he came back, he was brought back by force because he'd been arrested. Uh, he, It's, no, it's, I mean, he's a tragic figure, but that's not, that's not a tragedy. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated issue, the way all such things become complicated in their moment. When he took a side, he chose to go on to air Italy during World War II, and then broadcast an Italian on behalf of the fascists. And I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who admires Pound's earlier work mostly. Um, and I was just reading a book by a professor, I can't remember, he's from one of the Pennsylvania colleges, the Pound Scholar, who wrote the entire book on Pound. Uh, um, it's either Longenbach or, or Wilhelm. I think it's Wilhelm, actually. Uh-huh. And so I, don't, I think it's almost, I mean, it's not even debated that Pound was a um, fascist sympathizer and anti-Semitic, but maybe, you know, maybe also crazy, you know, a little bit. Um, I think it's a great question, actually. I really appreciate it because, you know, when I, as, when I work as a poet, I, have, I don't know if I've ever thought about well, what would Pound think of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mostly, you know, 
I mean, what, what, when his daughter, who translated all the cantos into Italian, couldn't figure something out, and she'd go to him and say, I'm not trying, I don't know what you're saying here. Right, that's right. But he, he said, don't try to understand it. Just read the damn thing. So, I, don't, I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I, I really don't imagine him responding to my work, but I, I'll think about that. His response would be imaging. That would be early time response to what he said. Well, yes, but if... Uh, so but it's... Well, that was one of his responses. But, but uh, at the time of Imagism, he was also, as T.S. Eliot was to say later, inventing Chinese poetry in our time. Right, so what does he say there? What would his big response with that? I mean, what, what do you think he... Because that's another, that's another phase of his... So anyway, you're saying, you're, your argument is that you wouldn't know what Pound says. No, no, no. No, that was just my preface. Okay. Um, um, first of all, I mean, it depends on whether you think about Pound or you think about me. If you, but I'm going to think about pounds. Um, to say that the cantos is in English could be debatable. Because what pound is doing, among other things, is creating a kind of world language. So if we take the statement, English is dying, with some ambiguity, which is how I hope it's understood, that is, everything is dying. If you were to say to a, a Latin poet in Rome, like Catullus, about 40, 42, whatever, 32 BC, Latin is a dead language, they would laugh. Uh, Gullah is a language that was spoken off the coast of South Carolina in an island that is its own language. In fact, I don't remember the statistic, but hundreds of languages have died in the last 20 years, hundreds. And there are many more dying, to a large degree, because of English. As English has become a dominant language around the world, it has actually, you could argue, been responsible for the disappearance of other languages. I live in South Louisiana. I moved there a long time ago, 30, almost 40 years, about 35, 36 years ago. When I first came to New Orleans, and you would go into the south part of the south central part of Louisiana around the city of Lafayette, Cajun country they call it. You could hear French broadcasts on the radio. They had French elementary schools, and children, some of them, were learning French. But it was not in their interest to learn French without learning English. And so many of them went to English schools. And uh, I've had a number of students over the years who are Cajun, uh, French Louisianans, who know the Cajun culture, are familiar with it, they grew up with it, they have all their sayings, but they don't speak French. They don't speak French. Um, and it's Cajun French, it's not French French. It's a particular variation of French. So unless they study it, say, oh, my grandma, my grandma, she spoke, you know, she would speak Cajun French. And my parents could understand what she was saying, and I could understand some of what she's saying, but you can't ask me to write a poem in French. One of my friends is a Cajun poet who actually writes poems. He, he and his, a number of them, but he, wrote, he writes in French, in Cajun French, because he's trying to keep the language alive. 
he was a poet laureate of, Louis, of Louisiana for a while. He was a great, great poet. Um, so the, the, the provocative side of what I'm trying to suggest by that question or by that statement is that we think it's like the earth or like the sun, like the sun will never die because we can't imagine a world, but we know also from astronomers that the sun will die sometime. At least that's what we're to understand if we understand the science of it, that it'll burn out. So it's in that kind of scope that I'm thinking about English dying. And I think probably what mostly provoked that poem was this thing about the Gullah language. Um, how uh, there's, I read recently again, I have to write these things down. There's a, somebody who's the last person who speaks a language who's still alive. And so they're recording the person and they're trying to make a grammar and all this stuff so the language doesn't die. But in a way, if people are not using it and not speaking it or not living it or not filling it with a sense of, of flesh, is what I sort of suggest in my poem. Um, uh, it becomes an, uh, sort of an artifact. Uh, and I think, if I can come back at that question, that English thinks it's doing fine, and that's part of the problem. Uh, um, you know, I'll use one other analogy. To, you probably don't want such a long answer. I apologize. That it was a 19-something or other, uh, and I remember taking, a, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I was taking a flight from Philadelphia to Chicago on TWA Airlines. You remember TWA Airlines? And the whole time, the guy, the steward, they don't call him that anymore, the flight attendant, was making fun of the train line that runs from Philadelphia to Chicago, which I had taken many times. Uh, uh, it's Amtrak now, but it used to be Pennsylvania Railroad going back and forth to Chicago. And he was saying, you know, we're in the air, and, and they're, you know, they're behind the times. And, and TWA Airlines doesn't exist anymore. You know, that, it, that is a sort of suggestion that it's a matter of time that your demise might come, English language. And that, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, give me... In Hungary, in Hungary, there are more poets per square mile, so that legend has it, than any other country in Europe because it's a small country that's surrounded by languages that are not related to Magyar. So the Hungarian poets feel besieged. They feel, the, the Hungarians feel that their language is besieged. And so who do they need to go to work for them? The poets, because the poets are the ones who can enrich, enliven, and make vital the language that we speak. Uh, and if it hadn't been for Shakespeare, who signed his name, what was it, eight different ways? He spelled his own name eight different ways. If he hadn't written some of the poems he had, we wouldn't have that English, regardless of the fact. I mean, the poems are beautiful, but the poems being beautiful make us want that language, you know, arose by any other name. And so we... So we, take, we, we embrace the language because he made it beautiful. If he had squandered it, or the, if the British had squandered it, then we'd probably be happy you know, speaking German because the, uh, the Germans almost won in the Continental Congress. You know, they almost made it the official language of the United States. Think of that. Um. And I think that might be a good note to end the Q and A on. That's um, fine. It's a very interesting Q and A. Um, do you want? Do you want to read one? Maybe one closing poem, or is that a? Or 
if, you, if I'm real, I, sure. I mean, I, if there are more questions, we can. Um, well, there will be a little time to mingle afterwards. I just. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. This is a poem called Miracoli. Miracoli. Uh, there's a, a, one of the prized churches in Venice. is a small church made of almost all marble. It's a very heavy, beautiful church. It's called a jewel box, sitting on a canal. You'd think it would sink because it's so heavy, but it's very fine. And it's called Santa Maria de Miracoli because there was a miracle, supposedly, that occurred there with the, with the Virgin. Um, and uh, I became aware of this church, of course, because of Ezra Pound, who loved Miracoli, and he loved the carvings inside. If you ever go to Italy, you have to find it. It's not too easy to find, but it's got these beautiful carvings inside, the whole inside. It's all one room. Um, and when the poet H.D., who was a... Uh, a long time, lifelong friend of Pound from the time that she was basically a teenager in Philadelphia, uh, came to Venice in 1913 with her parents. Pound was living there, and before she got, practically as soon as she got off the boat, he grabbed her and said, you have to go see this church, and took her through the streets to show her this church. She wrote about this many years later, um, and it was the Santa Maria de Miracoli Church. Uh, and so it became important to her. When he was in St. Elizabeth's, he asked for an icon to be sent, a picture of the church, to, a postcard. And she kept one with her through the bombing of London in, during World War II. So this is called Miracoli. doesn't have anything to do with what I just told you, but that's just the church. She counted the steps to the chancel, then slid to one side, maybe to hide maybe to emerge from the stream of those who'd climbed before and after, away from the gilded red runner newly draped there, and the sign, no visitors beyond here. Her fair hair, fallen to her shoulders in the off-light from the rafters, grew paler than heaven. No one knew what language two worshippers spoke in one pew, while the others, like spry flowers in neat rows, threw glances at the railings either side of the stairs, the ivory-faced sirens beneath them abruptly aglow, and above them the small figure flecked by the sky. Before we withdrew, the scarf over her shoulders Blue and red slipped, though not indecorously, exposing the delicate line of her neck. Only whispers of an indecipherable nature broke from the nave, cool as a cave, stark in spite of its speckled design. Outside, in the glimmer of day, after another moment, she mentioned not the carvings we had entered to see, nor the rose swirl in the gray-green marble I treasure, but the unearthly music 
that had arisen from the choir, no choir present, a music she must have suddenly imagined, flooding that space where little air escapes. It was silence I had sought, where she had found among the quiet parishioners a fray of song. I, who like to sing, pass on this memory, sprung like a shout of sprigs in spring from one now gone. Thank you again. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, John, um, Gary. That's wonderful. Um, and I just want to tell everyone we're selling, or I will be in one minute selling his books um, at the little shelf by the door here. And also, if you can leave us a survey commenting on the evening, um, those are sitting on the table as you walk out. And also, please get on our email list for notification about poetry events if you're not already on. But thank you all for coming.